Turn in your copy of the scriptures or scroll in your app, if you would please, to the book of Acts, chapter 10. Acts, chapter 10. And I'm going to read beginning in verse 1. And would ask that if you're physically able, would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's holy word and follow along as I read the entirety of Acts chapter 10. I would suggest shifting your weight from one leg to another. (laughs) Let's all do this together. Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. This is what the word of God says. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he, was be- and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise. Go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, "Uh, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, "Uh, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So... He invited them in to be his guests. But the next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. And when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up and said, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with them, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. Cornelius explains what happened, explains the vision. Skip down to verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through 
his name. And while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. As we continue to spend our time in this Acts sermon series, in the book of Acts, one thing is crystal clear, that the only thing constant is change. Acts is a transitional book in which Luke accounts through historical narrative the many things God is doing in and through the apostles as the gospel spreads. The church is built and the New Testament canon is written. It's hard to overstate the transitional nature of the book. So much of what we read is explaining to us the transition of the old covenant to the new covenant, which the writer of Hebrews describes as not only new, but better. Throughout the Old Testament, the primary function, for example, of the Holy Spirit was more of an external anointing of God's people and a a filling or a visiting, if you will, when they were in need of the manifest presence of God. But in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit comes to live, to dwell, to not visit, but to make his dwelling place, his home, to abide in the hearts of believers. He makes his home with us and empowers us from within, out with the old, in with the new. In Acts chapter 8, you'll remember that Philip proclaims the gospel in Samaria and the Holy Spirit comes upon the Samaritans. This is another huge transition as not just Jews, but Samaritans as well were given access to the hope of the gospel. That same Philip preached the gospel to an Ethiopian eunuch. This Ethiopian would have never been someone that Philip would have associated with since he was not only a Gentile, but a mutilated Gentile. But the Holy Spirit tells him to go to the Ethiopian, go to that chariot, and he does. And the Ethiopian is reading from the prophet Isaiah, and Philip is able to explain what he's reading. The Ethiopian hears the gospel, is saved, is baptized, and he goes back to his homeland as a new believer. Out with the old, in with the new. What's happening is, slowly but surely, the wall of separation that would separate Jew from Gentile is being chiseled away at. Each of these events and many others serves to put another, another dent, another crack, another destructive blow into the barrier that existed between the Jews and everyone else. Last week, we looked at Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9. What a reminder to us of the life-giving, life-changing power of the gospel at work in Saul and at work in the hearts of people like you and like me. Saul was a first-century terrorist. That's what he was. He killed Christians, believed he was being zealous for God. And that man becomes one of the greatest heroes of the faith, and he has given a love for the very Christ he persecuted. At the end of chapter 9, though, we didn't have time to look at it last week, we find the apostle, not Paul, but Peter. And he traveled to a city named Joppa, where he was presented with a woman named Tabitha. And in the Greek, her name is Dorcas. That's rough. We'll call her Tabitha. She had died, and Peter is called to the scene. He prays. He calls her to rise. And she is, by God's grace, restored to life. So take a look just before the text that we were looking at. Look at Acts chapter 9 and verse 40. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, that's Tabitha's body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. But look at verse 43. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Now, a tanner is someone who would work with the skins of dead animals. And for someone who's raised as a Jew, which Peter was, that's like no bueno. But the fact that Peter is willing to stay in Simon's house is another example of that wall of separation being chiseled away. It might be dented. There might be some holes. 
But the walls still remained in the minds and hearts of people. Old habits die hard. And so the text we're looking at today in Acts chapter 10 is the wrecking ball that will finally take down whatever is left of that wall of separation between Jew and Gentile. So let's pick it up in Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Uh, Verse 1 says that we're in Caesarea, and there's a man named Cornelius who was a centurion. Now, a centurion was like, they they were known as the backbone of the Roman army. Uh, A Roman legion would consist of 6,000 men and was divided into 10 cohorts of 600 men each, and a centurion would command 100 of these men. So a lot of responsibility. Uh, I read a Roman historian as I was studying that said centurions are not so much the venturesome daredevils that would uh, perhaps initiate a battle, but were more natural leaders of a a more steady spirit, a more sedate spirit. They're not so much men who uh, initiate and open the attacks as men who will hold their ground when worsted and hard-pressed and be ready to even die at their posts. Why am I telling you this? Because this is all we know about Cornelius, that he was a centurion of the Italian cohort and that he was sitting there and God was doing a great work in his life. And like the other centurions mentioned in the New Testament, he would have reached his rank by proving to be a strong and responsible and reliable man. Look at verse 2. It says, He was a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. Now, there's a lot of debate as to whether or not Cornelius is already a believer because of how he's described there in verse 2. I don't know that it really matters all that much, right? Like maybe you're like, I think I was saved when I was this age, or it was either when this happened at this age. It doesn't really matter all that much. It matters now that you love Jesus. So it doesn't really matter all that much, but I just thought I would throw in a little comment that I don't think Cornelius was a believer at this time. I think the text indicates that he was devout, which means he was religious. I think he was a God-fearer because that's what the text says, but that really, when it comes to Cornelius, tells us more about what he was not than what he was, right? Because he is a Roman, so the fact that he fears God means he has cast aside and abandoned the pagan religion that would have been normal to him as someone who's a Roman, Um, So he cast aside pagan religion and worship. He would have had an appreciation for, maybe even affection for the scriptures. And he sought to instruct his families in the ways of God. And he was even generous in giving alms. But Romans 10 and verse 14 comes to mind. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So I think if he was a believer, I don't think God would have sent Peter to him. Just my opinion. Plus, there's no indication in the text that he has any knowledge of, much less a love for Jesus. And again, Romans 10, verse 17 comes to mind. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But get this, God was preparing him to be converted. Don't Make no mistake, just because I don't think he was a believer doesn't mean that God wasn't greatly working in his life and preparing him to hear about Jesus and be saved, to prepare him to hear the message of the angel that appeared to him and to put him in a place where he would, in fact, do what the angel said. So that's where we find Cornelius. Saved? No. Seeking? Oh, yes. Prepared and ready to hear the gospel? Absolutely. And so Cornelius is visited by an angel, and his response is one of fear, which everyone's response is, by the way, when they see an angel. It's not these mamby-pamby little gentle angels that we see in cartoons and stuff. So many times throughout the Bible, when an angel appears, the first thing they have to tell people is like, don't die, or like, fear not. Just chill. I have a message. Come back. Right? So many times we see that. So that's a very common response to angels showing up. And he responds with fear. Um, And the angel tells him to send men to Joppa to get Peter and bring him back to his house. And he does. So he sends three guys, two servants and a soldier, to Joppa to find Peter. Now, meanwhile, uh, verse 9, God is also preparing Peter's heart. Now, Um, sometimes it's helpful for you to find yourself in the story. I encourage people to do that a lot, especially when reading through narrative portions of Scripture. Um, I don't know about you, but I can really relate to Peter. First of all, I like his name. Second of all, uh, just the way, the things that he wrestles with, it's like I'm so glad to hear somebody who wrestles in this way, who even has flaws in the way that he has flaws, and God still uses him to do great things. So take a look at verse 9. 
The next day, as they were, so they were already on their way. The Cornelius had sent his delegation to the city. Peter was up on the rooftop about the sixth hour to pray. And so the Jewish day started at 6 a.m. This is the sixth hour. Six plus six is 12. Right. Expected more of you would know that, but it's good. You're fine. For Thomas, they typically just shout it right out, but it's a, it's a, a better school district. Um, <laughs> So it's, it's about high noon, 6 plus 6 is 12. That's, the, that's the, uh, the, the, the scene that we're, come back, that's the scene that we're finding ourselves in. It's high noon, Peter has gone upon the rooftop to pray, and uh, all of a sudden, he is hungry. He's hungry, that's what it says in verse 10. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. Who among us can't relate to that? That we have set out to pray, we're going to have a really good time with the Lord, and we're going to set, and we're going to pray, and we're ready and we just think, I really should get a muffin. And just, it's just set the prayer aside for a minute, go get a little snack. We know Peter left the rooftop. Why? Because it says what? It says, um, while they are, were preparing it, that's verse 10. So he didn't like text them. So he went downstairs, said, could you guys, you got anything to eat? you have any, I'm kind of hungry. So they were preparing it. Then he probably goes back up on the, on the roof and he falls into a trance. This is again something I can relate to. Trance is not... I don't think he actually fell asleep. Um, As I studied, I think it's more like a daydream. Who among us hasn't daydreamed while praying? These things happen. We are more like him than unlike him. And he falls into this trance, and he saw, I love the, the, you could see the honesty, maybe even a little bit of the confusion. Verse 11, as Luke is explaining something that's supernatural that he himself did not experience, right? He heard about this from Peter, who's trying to say, it was like, it was bizarre, man. It was like a great, like a sheet. A what? A sheet. Just listen. It was, that's the only thing I could compare it to. It's like a sheet that came down from heaven. It's being descended by its four corners. In this sheet were all kinds of animals. Now, all kinds of animals. Reptiles and birds of the air. And then it gets weirder. Verse 13. There came a voice to him. Rise, Peter. Kill and eat. And so Peter's hungry. He sees all these animals, but he says, no, 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 by, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second, uh, again a second time, what God has made clean do not call common. What God has made clean do not call common. Hey, what God has made clean do not call common. And I say that three times because verse 16 says that he said that three times and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, there's at least, uh, it, it, there's, there's something I want to call our attention to. I don't think it's the primary application of the text, but I just want you to know this, that you need to remember that obedience to God always accompanies true faith. Obedience to God always accompanies true faith. Not perfect obedience, not sinlessness, but hopefully we would sin less. And we would have a desire as people who have, who have faith, who have saving faith, that we would desire to be obedient to God. And you can't separate a love for Christ with obedience to his word. Again, not perfect obedience, but obedience is not the rare occasion in the Christian's life. It's the norm. And there's several verses in your outline where we see Jesus' words. For example, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who what? Does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Christ's words in John chapter 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. The brother of our Savior, James chapter 2 and verse 14 says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? What good is it to have faith but that faith is not showing itself, showing the fruit of that faith in how you're working, how you're acting, how you are obeying? 1 John 2, 3 says, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Now, I want to encourage you to compare the two accounts that we just read of, of the centurion and Peter. They're strikingly similar. Both of them pray. Both of them have a supernatural experience. Both of them are told to do something, and fun fact, both of them take eight verses in your Bible. But they have very different responses. You see, the centurion, he was He was trained, he was experienced, he would be, I mean, battle-worn, he would have been a fearless man, but his initial response to the message of God was fear and immediate obedience. 
right? Look at it again, Acts chapter 10, verse 4. He stared at him in terror and said, what is it? Uh, Verse 7 says, when the angel who spoke to him had departed, what did he do? He immediately called two of his servants and a devout soldier and said, let's do what we were told to do. Immediate obedience. Was Cornelius a Christian? No. But God was working in his heart in such a way that he would immediately obey. Now, Peter, on the other hand, uh, this is a man who walked with Christ, loved him dearly. Uh, His initial response to the message of God was the same as it has always been. Argument. And eventually obedience. Acts chapter 10, verse 13, there, was a, 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 there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord. Okay, never look at God and say, by no means, Lord. Like that's just a general rule of thumb. Like we don't look to Jesus and say, no, I don't think so. By no means, Lord. I don't think Cornelius was a Christian at this time, was, but Peter was like so a Christian, Right? An apostle, a witness to the resurrected Christ, a witness to the ascended Christ, saw him float away into the air. But he likes to argue. He's an arguer. We remember back in the Gospel of John, uh, what is it, chapter 13, Jesus says, I want to wash the disciples' feet. I want to wash your guys' feet. Everyone's taken off their sandals. Peter, no, 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 you will never wash my feet. I have to wash your feet. If I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me. Well, then, Lord, wash my whole body. Jesus is like, or we could go back to my plan. Just the feet. Just the feet. Sit down. I'll wash your feet. He likes to argue. Um, You're going to deny me three times before the rooster goes cock-a-doodle-doo. No, not me, Lord. Sure enough, he does that. Jesus is explaining he has to go to the cross. Jesus, Peter says, I'll never, I'll never let that happen. That's when Jesus says, okay, I'm going to call you Satan now and ask you to get behind me. Jesus is arrested like he's supposed to be, like he said he would be. What does Peter do? Takes out a sword, cuts off a guy's ear. Poor Jesus, he's just been arrested. He's got to now heal. Oh, gosh. Heals his ear. Would you Stop. This is Peter. He's an arguer. But he eventually obeys. What about you? I will assume, if you are a Christian, according to the texts that we just read, those several texts throughout the Gospels and other books, I will assume that if you're a Christian, you're obedient. That doesn't mean you're perfect. Nobody's perfect. But you, are, you desire to obey. What I want to know is do you obey immediately Or do you obey eventually? What's your turnaround time when it comes to the Lord laying something on your heart, the Lord showing you something from his word? Do you obey immediately or do you obey eventually? Even the most seasoned Christians will find themselves in need to change their motives, adjust their thoughts, rearrange their lifestyles and actions for God's glory and for the good of others. And the longer Christians have walked with the Lord, the more we've seen his faithfulness time and time again. The more time we've acquainted ourselves with his ways, his mercy, the more times he's walked with us through valley after valley after valley, the faster we should obey. The faster we should want to be pleasing to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hasn't God done enough for us that we would want to obey immediately? Hasn't he called us to things that he then enables us to do? Hasn't he walked with us through every trial and temptation? Hasn't he sent his son for sinners like you and like me? What about you? Do you immediately obey or do you eventually obey? Can you look back upon your life, however, you've been, however long you've been walking with the Lord, and say, I obey faster now, not out of fear, out of wisdom, Out of experience, I obey faster now because God has been so good to me. I've never obeyed him and regretted it. Do you obey immediately or eventually? I think that's something that's worth considering as we look at our text today. But let's get back to the text and uh, let's talk a little bit about Old Testament dietary laws for a minute. What what is Peter told? I've never eaten anything common or unclean. Well, I can't get into it all Um, But a little bit we can talk about it. In the Old Testament, 
primarily Leviticus 11, God laid out dietary laws for the Israelites, prohibitions against eating certain foods, pork, shrimp, shellfish, many types of seafoods, lots of bugs, scavenger birds, and various other animals. Now, some people look at God's Old Testament dietary laws and say God put those into place for the health and well-being of his people. After all, it's just never good to eat a scavenger animal. So God's helping, helping these people to eat things that are healthy, that are good, that uh, would cause them to be healthier and live happier lives. And that is, if that's the case, that's incidental at best, but that's completely foreign to the pages of Scripture. You need to know that God's primary concern for his people was not just their physical well-being. Like, he's not putting together a diet for them to make sure that they live their best life now. It was Whole30. This is Holy30. No, that's not what this is. He's putting together a dietary, dietary restrictions for the main reason that he wants his people to be separate, to be holy, to be separated from the Gentiles. Uh, that's the reason that he puts these dietary restrictions into place. Because think about it. Food separates people. Even today, food separates people. Some people have dietary restrictions, have to think twice about whether or not they're going to be able to go someplace or have to prepare food especially because they want to accommodate their guests because they understand that their guests have to eat a certain way. But if that knowledge is known, food can separate people. Sometimes it's not dietary restrictions. It could be dietary preferences. I remember recently our family went to the Kenwood Mall. We never go to malls, but we went to the Kenwood Mall because we had some family visiting us and there's a Disney store there. They don't have a Disney store. They wanted to go to Disney store. Great. Go to the Kenwood Mall. That's great. So we're walking through the mall. We actually had a really, really great time. Like we're looking in different stores and just hanging out. It was during that really, really hot, really hot period that we had over the summer. So it was just great to be inside in air conditioning we were having a good time. We're all walking together in and out of these stores. Ooh, what do you think of that? Oh, that's pretty. Imagine that. Then we finally, if you're familiar with Kenwood, we get to the, the food court, and it's on the lower level. So we're descending down into the food court, and it's like, oh, all these food options. We get off the escalator, and all of a sudden, what happens? This once united, fun-loving, glad-to-be-together family... I want Chick-fil-A. No, I want Chipotle. No, why can't we get Chinese? I got the Chinese. I wouldn't get the Chinese. I want this. I want that. I want that. I want to get pizza. And what happens? Well, a couple of people go over and get some Chick-fil-A. Some people get some Chipotle. Some people get some Chinese. Some people get, I don't know, whatever else. Some people get pizza. Food separates people. Food is a great separator of people. The dietary restrictions in the Old Testament were there for the benefit of the people, but not primarily for their health, but because God wanted them to be holy separated from the Gentiles. So he was being kind to them. So if you were ever tempted to like go hang out with the Amalekites because they seemed kind of cool, you could only do so for so long. Why? Because eventually you got to eat. And if you read through the dietary restrictions, it's not just don't do this, don't do that. The way the Lord words it several times, these things are detestable to you. Ugh, you would, ugh, when you saw these foods. So it's not like, mm, wow, I really want to do that. So they would have been brought up to not just not eat these things, but to despise these things. Like, they're detestable to you. And so God, in his kindness and his mercy, sets it up so that the intermingling of Jew and Gentile would be rather hard to do in a very practical way because you simply got to eat. And so Jews ate with Jews and ate the, the Lord, the food prescribed. The, the food, they didn't eat the Lord. They did not eat the Lord. Don't tweet that. Jews ate with Jews and ate the food that the Lord prescribed for them, and Gentiles ate everything else. So remember how God was preparing Cornelius? He's also preparing Peter to go do something he would have never, ever done. Enter the house of a pagan, Roman, centurion to share Jesus with him. Pick it up in verse 17 of Acts 10. So Peter just had this vision. Verse 17 says, Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed, for the, the, he couldn't understand what this vision might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, God's perfect timing, having made inquiry for Simon's house. Can you tell me which one is Simon's house? I'm looking for Simon the Tanner. I'm not even, what is he, is it that? Oh, on the left? Okay. So he, they've made inquiry to find Simon the Tanner's house. Verse 18, called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, I love this, Behold, three men are looking for you. Verse 20, rise and go down and accompany them. Hey, Pete, without hesitation, bro. Right, Pete? Nod with me. Without hesitation. 
Literally in the Greek, uh, there's a typo in your outline. It says in Acts 20. It should say in verse 20. That's my fault. That Greek term that's without hesitation is like without any misgivings. Don't doubt a thing. Just go, man. Just go. Don't think twice about it. Don't hesitate. Don't wonder. Don't lean on what feels right or even how you've behaved your entire life. Out with the old, in with the new. Just go. And Peter's being called to do something that we are called to do as well, which is our second point. You need to lay aside your comfort, even your prejudices, that which feels right, that which you've always thought. You might be called by God to lay those things aside in order to be used by God. So this occurred to me as I was reading this and studying this this past week. I kind of like the path of least resistance, right? Get it done. So... God appears to Cornelius, or excuse me, God speaks to Cornelius through an angel, right? Couldn't he have just shared the gospel with him then? Acts 10 could have been a lot shorter. Certainly God would speak more clearly than Peter. He wouldn't have to argue. What is this? We're sending people all the way to Joppa to get Peter to come back from Joppa to go to Caesarea. It's just a lot of, a lot of middlemen. Why didn't God just clearly say to Cornelius what he wanted him to know? Get it done. Because that might be more efficient, but that's clearly not all God had in mind. God wanted to change Peter through this process too. He wanted to help him lay aside his old ways, take him out of his comfort zone, chip away at whatever, whatever old ways of thinking, whatever prejudices, whatever ways he would have looked down upon, upon people. God wanted to take those things which would have been laid up in his heart, laid up in his mind, and use him for his glory to spread the gospel. Because if God hadn't done that, he would likely never do that. I mean, look at how he responded just in a vision to God, from God himself, about food. By no, 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 I think he got the wrong guy. By no means, Lord. And so God wants to change his heart, to take him out of where he feels comfortable, to help him to lay aside the ways that he's been thinking for virtually his whole life so he could use him to do mighty things. Question. Is there a person... Or a group of persons you tend to look down on. For whatever reason. A person or, or people group that you tend to look down on. And so for God to reach them, you won't thwart God's plan. You won't stand in his way. Don't worry. You're not that big of a deal. But in order for God to reach them, he's going to have to work around you. Because quite frankly, he just can't work through you. And not with that heart. Not with that mind. Not with that attitude. Is there a person, does a person come to mind, a people group come to mind, for whatever reason, that God currently is likely not going to work through you to reach. He'll reach them, but he'll work around you because you tend to look down on them. I don't know why, but you just do. Maybe you were brought up in a racist home. And I don't mean like, kind of maybe it's like some of you I know you've been brought up in like intentional spoken racism obvious racism it was stated it was undeniable that's just how you were raised and old habits die hard you say Pastor Peter you could say I would the old and with the new but that takes a lot of effort that takes a lot of I need a lot of help from God to do that because I just tend to think like this I have always my whole life thought of these people in this way so out with the old and with the new preaches well But that's really hard to do, and that's just your natural inclination. Or maybe you weren't brought up in a home like that, but you just have racist tendencies that you don't even that you don't even intend, right? You say, No, I love all those kinds of people. Maybe that's just the way you think because you hang out mostly with people like yourself. So when you're around people who are not like you, you feel awkward. You're a bit taken aback when you're around people who are different. But maybe it's not race. Maybe it's lifestyle. You are, 
super uncomfortable being around people who live a certain type of lifestyle, people who spend their money in this way, people who love other people in this way, people who do things that go against God's word, people who do things that you're just not used to, people who vote a certain way, people who act a certain way. You're just entirely uncomfortable. You dislike them. You don't really want to be around them. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's, it's earning potential. Maybe it's upbringing. Maybe it's blue collar versus white collar. I don't know. Who are the people that, in order for God to reach, he's going to end up reaching them, but he's probably going to have to work around you instead of through you. Let me put it this way. Who are the people you'd prefer God work around you? You're like, yes, please and thank you. Work around me. I'd rather not be involved in that interaction at all. Reach them another way. You're God. I'm not. Please don't use me. That would be really awkward. That would be really hard. That would take me way out of my comfort zone. It's just too awkward. Now, you may recall I've preached a few different messages now on the sanctity of human life. I've tried to, in those messages, highlight the difference between what I call a pro-birth ethic and a pro-life ethic, that God shows us in his word of the sanctity of human life, yes, in the womb, but from the womb to the tomb and in every aspect in between, that God cares about and there's an intrinsic value and intrinsic uh, separation from the rest of creation with every one of the people that God has created because we are made in his image. And so after, there's probably maybe eight weeks after I preached one of those messages, a guy comes up to me, Man's man, tough guy. I mean, tough as nails. Just comes up to me and he goes, Well, a lot of this. Well, I, I heard your sermon online. And I'm like, Oh boy, I don't know which way this is going. I'm just kind of bracing myself for impact. He goes, I listened to it online and, well, the other day I was walking downtown. I found me a Muslim. So I'm just listening. I'm thinking, you found you a Muslim? What does that even, I don't, I'm, okay, go, I'm, found me a Muslim, okay? And I, so I decided to talk to him. I invited him to church. That's what I decided to do. Just kind of walked away. I said, wow, that's, I said, that's really, really cool. But you have to understand what's being, what's being expressed there is that was a huge, huge step for him. Out with the old, in with the new. It was way out of his comfort zone to do something like that. That's what was being expressed. It's because before, the reason he never found him a Muslim is because he never looked for him a Muslim. But now he found him a Muslim. <laughs> Why couldn't dying, are you not wishing the fly on the wall? Like, what did that even mean? But God was using him to do something he would have never ordinarily done because he realizes that a person's a person, Muslims and all. Out with the old, in with the new. But it doesn't have to be race or religion. It could, maybe it's just an awkward relationship, an awkward friendship, uh, an awkward familial relationship. Uh, you will recall, perhaps, that my parents uh, divorced when I was rather young. And um, my mom was not a Christian. My dad was not a Christian. Um, and, of course, my mom was just laid low. I mean, this just took her out at the knees that her husband was leaving her. And so after dad had left, um, my, please pay attention, my father's mother so my mom, my grandmother, my mom's ex-mother-in-law, who had a relationship with Jesus uh, and was praying for my mom, decided that she would come and check in on my mom and let her know that she was praying for her, and then also to tell her a little bit about Jesus. Now, my mom, like brand new to everything that's going on, she's in a time of trauma, she doesn't know what's going on in her life, everything's upside down, everything's different, she's angry, she's depressed, she's sad, she's angry, she's just lather, rinse, repeat, right, over and over again. And here comes my mom's ex, 
mother-in-law to tell her about Jesus and that she really needed Jesus. My mom's like, you really need Jesus. Let me tell you. I need you. He really needs Jesus. There's a lot of people who need Jesus. What I, don't need, I need a husband. That's what I need right now. I don't need Jesus. So she got into like, you know, one of these, hmm. wow, thanks. Oh, I should pray. And she gives her a prayer to pray, and it's about that she needs to be forgiven for her sin. Oh, I've sinned, mom's thinking. Oh, I need to ask forgiveness. Okay, right. You are fresh out of crazy town. And so I texted my mom uh, earlier this week. I said this. What role would you say Grandma LaRufa played in your salvation? And she said, huge role. She definitely prayed for me to rely on Jesus for comfort after Daddy moved out. She prayed with me. She also gave me prayer from a page in a prayer book to read and pray. When I actually read it at home, I was upset because it was basically a sinner's prayer asking the Lord for forgiveness and submitting to him. I was upset because I was focusing on Daddy leaving me and didn't understand why I was expected to ask for forgiveness. After time, and especially after hearing the gospel, I understood the prayer and realized it was exactly what I needed to pray. I said, I'm mentioning it in my sermon on Sunday, and then with this emoji. (laughs) Like, not the smile, the like. And she said, sweet. And she said, you never really know whose prayers are being answered when the Lord saves you. And then she said, by the way, please let me know about me possibly visiting over Columbus Day weekend. I see some amazing <laughs> fairs. They probably won't last. Friday, October 11th, two six seven. Okay, okay, okay. Mom. What if the Lord laid that on Grandma's heart? And Grandma was like, uh, by no means. There are billions of people in the world. Not me. Get yourself another girl. But she went. Stepped out of her comfort zone and shared Jesus with my mom. I don't know if it's a neighbor, a coworker, a classmate, a roommate, a spouse, a child. The word of God to Peter is the word of God to us as well. What God has made clean, do not call common. When Jesus died, so did the ceremonies and the restrictions. Gone. The dividing lines are gone. There's no more clean and unclean. There's just food. And there's no more Jew and Gentile. There's just saved and lost. There's anyone who's a Christian or anyone who's not a Christian. And they're all, the ground is level. It's a level playing field at the foot of the cross because how many have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? Most, some, no, what? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so that's how we're to view people. People who know Christ and people who don't know Christ. People who love Jesus and people who don't love Jesus. People who are on their way to heaven and people who will go to hell. But there's no more Jew and Gentile specifically in the church because they're one in Christ. Galatians 3, 28 and following. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. That doesn't mean if you're Greek, you're not really Greek. Sure, you're Greek. He's just saying it doesn't amount to anything. Whether you're male or female, that's fine. You are that, but that's not important right now. We are one in Jesus Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And quite frankly, nothing defeats racism, uh, all the phobias, all the isms. Nothing defeats those dividing lines and those barriers like the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nothing. There's no amount of do-goodness that we could promise. There's no amount of trying to be more tolerant, trying to be more accepting. Jesus. Jesus is the one who unites all people, unites all people into two groups. Those who know him, those who don't know him. And that's the change that God is doing in Peter's heart. To see Cornelius as a fellow man, not unlike himself before he came to know Christ. And so pick it up at verse 21. Peter goes down to the member. Go down without hesitation. Just go, man. Go. So verse 21, 
Peter went down to the men and said, I'm so awkward. I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason you're here? Right? I know that I'm the one you're looking for. I don't really know why you're looking for me. Please be gentle. Like, I don't know what you're doing here. Verse 22, they said, Cornelius the centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who's spoken well by the whole Jewish nation. In reality, like, we come in peace. Please don't you be mad at us. This is a very awkward interaction. He was directed by an angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests, right? It's like, we can make more snacks. They're already making me a snack. Come on in. The next day, he rose up and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him, right? We're like, yeah, probably should go with Peter, because he's walking away with three strangers. They're Romans, and he doesn't really know why. Let's go with Peter. Let's try to help him. On the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them. What did he do? He had called together his family, called together his close friends, and when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, stand up. I'm not God. That's not what he says. He says, stand up. I what? I too am a man. That's a huge statement because he's saying, bro, we're the same. Stand up. I'm no different. I too am a man. And here's Peter being used by God to speak to Cornelius in Caesarea, the same place that Peter said, I believe you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And now he's here to tell Cornelius about Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. Verse 27, and as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit any one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. But here's the thing. God never said that. Look back at the vision. God's talking about food. But here's what happened. The Holy Spirit worked in Peter's heart to help him to connect the dots between that illustration in a way that he needed to personally apply it in his life. Here's this illustration, and then he was able to personally apply it in his life and do great things for the kingdom. That's the Holy Spirit doing what he does, helping to connect the dots for Peter in a way that Peter couldn't do on his own and helping to apply the word to his specific situation. That's what I rest in as a preacher, That God's going to do the heavy lifting when hearts need to be changed. That I'm going to study, I'm going to pray, I'm going to write, I'm going to read, and I'm going to preach one message to a crowded room of people, but that when the hearts need to be changed, God continues to preach it very specifically to you and to you and to you and to you and to you you in very different ways. And saying, in light of the truth that I heard that was generally preached, here's how it's specifically applied to me. You can rest knowing that the Holy Spirit does the heavy lifting when a heart needs to be changed. I preach, I pray, you listen, you go, and God works in your heart and mind to change you personally in ways I never could from this pulpit. And that's what God does for Peter. Pick it up in verse 33. So I, Cornelius says, so I sent for you at once, and you've been kind enough to come Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. And Peter proceeds to share the gospel, to share the truth about Jesus Christ. It's one of the most concise yet most detailed accounts of the gospel being shared we have in the entire book of Acts. Verse 42, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Look at verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, while Peter was saying these things, what happens? The Holy Spirit steps in and does what only he can do. Right? No magic words. Peter didn't have to stop preaching and like say, okay, I'm going to, just give me a minute. I have to talk to the big guy upstairs. While Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit comes in to do what only the Holy Spirit can do. 
And Peter's just a man who is willing to be obedient to the Lord, eventually. Willing to lay aside his preconceived notions of people, willing to step way out of his comfort zone and tell them about Jesus. And while he was still speaking, God steps in and does what only he can do. Changes hearts, changes minds, changes lives. You know, earlier in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4, we read a very important truth earlier in our series, and that is there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What about you? You have a Holy Spirit that does the heavy lifting to change hearts and minds, even yours, even mine. You have a Savior who has proven himself to be faithful, that he saves people even to the uttermost, even people like you and like me, who died on the cross and was buried and rose again on the third day and is ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father and is coming again to judge the quick and the dead. What about you? Is God calling you to think differently about how you use your time with people or about how you use your time avoiding a certain person who needs to know the love of Christ? What is God calling you to do as you think through this transition, this change, this wrecking ball, knocking down this final wall? What wall is there in your life between a person, between a, even if it's a hypothetical group of people, just the, ugh, the people that you just can't stand, that you look down upon? What would God have you change as he calls you to consider out with the old, in with the new? Father in heaven, we come before you grateful for our Savior, grateful for Christ the Word, Grateful for the word of God that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword that is able to discern our thoughts, our feelings, our motives way better than we are. And Lord, we pray that you would do, do what you did that we just read about in Acts chapter 10. Holy Spirit, come upon us and fill us and apply the word of God in a very, very, very specific way. Show us where we need to change. You are kind and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in mercy. Show us what we need to change so that we might be more like you, less like ourselves, and that you might be pleased to work through us for the glory of your great name. Amen.